Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice... I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Sanctuary. We will explore the concept of sanctuary through the shamatha practice of meditation and how this practice can reunite us with the sanctuary of unconditional mind. Today we're joined by Laura Sims. Laura is an award-winning performer, writer, and educator, advocating storytelling as compassionate action for personal and community transformation. She performs worldwide for adult and young audiences and is a senior teacher of Shambhala Buddhist meditation. She continues to work in Haiti with girl groups, is the author of two books, and serves on the UN NGO Council for Global Education. Laura is also the co-director of Hands-On Sierra Leone and directs the Hans Christian Andersen Storytelling Center. She has been a student of Chagam Trungpa Rinpoche since 1979. Here's Laura to take away the discussion. Um, I'm going to tell you about the title of this talk and how it came to be. The title of the talk is Sanctuary. And about two weeks ago, I was in an accident. So I had to be taken from somewhere in Queens, which is like a foreign country for a lower Manhattan person, to an emergency room near my house. And the shock of the situation and the pain and all the people who suddenly were surrounding me um, to make sure that I wasn't going to litigate against them. <laughs> and, which I am, actually. And, um, <laughs> but not about them personally. And, um, the, and am I okay? And you know, did I want to get up? And I said, oh, I'll get up in a minute, because that's what I'm used to. You, know, you fall, you get up. But I couldn't. So I was taken to an emergency room. And all the way, I was sort of like mentally obsessed with how I could protect this arm that felt um, shattered something. And from the bumpy ride and the heat. And then we got there, and I was placed in the humbling little you know, area where you have a bed and a curtain, and you have people around you, and all around you are an assortment of people who are in great need at different levels of whatever has brought them there. And so someone came and, and uh, told me, you know, what I asked me questions, some relevant, some really peculiar, and then um, said that someone would be back in about five minutes to take my information, and two hours later, somebody came. So, <laughs> I actually thought, okay, I'll do shamatha. The lying down on your back form of shamatha practice. And as I did that, it did not relieve the pain. But actually, I began to calm down 
and be able to recognize that whatever had happened, it actually happened. <laughs> and whatever was going to happen next was going to happen next. And there I was in this funny little space. And I thought, this practice is actually my sanctuary. And so it feels very appropriate. Not only because this is our last gathering of this year, but also because of the intense and disturbing news that when you think it can't get any worse, surprises you <laughs> by its damaging um, occurrences. So I feel that the practice that we're doing of mindfulness awareness, the shamatha practice of meditation, whether we're doing it with the instruction of a Buddhist teacher or with the beauty of the Shambhala teachings and presentation, we are actually being reunited with the most fundamental quality of our lives, which is the sanctuary of unconditional mind. So traditionally, before wheat was cultivated, about 9,000 years ago, there were no temples, no palaces, and no fortified cities. But what there was were sanctuaries. Places set apart, sacred because they were the heightened space in which people could gather. And whether it had to do with cosmic energy or um, just the nature of our being, it was the place where you reconnected or accessed, rebooted your connection to heaven and earth, to animal and plant and spirit and human being, individuals and community. These sanctuaries were often open air sanctuaries or in caves or on the top of mountains. But the more that there was something to protect, to gather and hold on to, um, the more that these sanctuaries turned into fortified temples and eventually into palaces with warrior kings. And the great mother religions, which gave equal union to male and female, were overtaken by this warrior ethic of wars and protection and ownership and territory and the gaining of wealth. Now, why I'm saying this is because when I look out at our world, the incomprehensible um, fury with which this warrior aspect is being um, propagated is like a kind of complete 
dissociation from everything that sanctuary was and provided, which had some continuity for thousands of years because of the sense of spirituality that kept people together. So it is the ultimate fortified situation. And as Norman Fisher, a great Zen teacher, said, the true and most difficult um, warrior king, the monster that's hardest for us to overcome is really in our own mind. And when we do that, we begin to uncover and access this sense of connection and this sense of um, sanctuary in ourselves on the spot. And I would imagine that since you're here, that in some way, small or large, each one of us has felt this or smelled it or known it's possible because otherwise we would not come to meditate or we have a suspicion at least that something else is really going on. <laughs> is this helpful? Jungba Rinpoche, in the last chapter of the gathering of all his early teachings on the Hinayana, which is the kind of the basic, fundamental first presentation of meditation practice, said that the practice is gut level, and it is nothing more than our being able to actually be in the world as it is, as opposed to what we assume or have learned or see through a filter of projection, bias, concept, um, an endless struggle to hold things together or to make the world the way we'd like it, that this is, a, this is our relationship to a very gut-level sense of full-bodied, emotional, and visceral all the senses awakened being. So the sanctuary is not a place where it is just separate and sort of mushy and um, devoid of conflict. In fact, in a study I was reading by a great archeologist, he said that actually the sanctuary allowed for people to engage in singing and dancing and activities that actually allowed for the energy of the difficulties and struggles and aggression that rises up in us human beings. It was included. But the practice that we're doing is actually, I think, not going to magically, although I would love it to, change the speed and aggression that's going on in the world, but it can change our relationship and our response to it. So the sanctuary we're talking about may not be an open circle surrounded by great stones out in the plains, but it is much more intimate within each of us. The heart of the practice, which I think so many of the talks that we have here in the Dharma Gathering are always talking about being able to access 
the innate space or unconditional quality or ground, basic goodness in Shambhala terms, that's always present. But what I wanted to talk about this evening is about a quality of that space. And I chose this because I really do feel that in the study of the Dharma, in the study of the teachings, we're not getting concepts that we then memorize so that we now know a lot about Buddhism or Shambhala, but we're given a way to reflect on our own experience so we can deeply personalize and understand how the mind works. Our most direct experience of the world. So I think the Sakyang used to say that well, he was amazed because we all want to diet and go to the gym. I, I've been on a, a sort of ephemeral, fantastic diet for about 40 years. And um, we, we are so invested in learning about that, but we put little investment in really knowing who we are directly and experientially. And that's what we're gaining, is the intelligence of our lives. So in Buddhist terms, genuine intelligence is called prajna. And it's a word now, after so many years of contemplation, that arouses a great joy in me, just hearing it, prajna. Because it's not the, the wisdom or intellectual gathering of information. It's actually almost the opposite. It's what can make all of that gathering of information useful, relevant. It is the natural access of the mind itself when it is fully embodied with senses alert, without grasping onto one thought after another. It is the wakeful, luminous, intelligent quality of our minds. If I'm saying anything that confuses you, one hand, that's great. Um, and on the other, please raise your hand. I, I don't want this to be just, you know, like she's giving a Dharma talk. I, I don't know what's going on. It must be good. Um, <laughs> So there are two kinds of prajnas, called the higher prajna and the lower prajna. And there are endless categories in these teachings, only so that over and over again, even though our practice is the same, we keep becoming more subtly aware in our everyday, ordinary lives of how we're functioning. It's like the great invisible tool. So the higher prajnas consider the sort of innate luminosity of experiencing things as they are. And the lower prajna is, 
is considered the training, the path, what we do to keep arousing that sense and opening that sense and looking at our lives in relationship to practice. It's actually, um, this practice interrupts our lives in the most significant way. I would say that actually awakening the, or uncovering whatever blocks us from this experience of prajna, this wakeful sense of contentment and discernment in Shambhala terms, for those of you who read the Shambhala Book of the Warrior, that you have a general sense of rest even in the midst of chaos because you have a place that's always there that you can go back to, like underneath the swimming pool, <laughs> underneath the basement, another invisible basement that's always there with fresh springs of water, that it has that sense of contentment, but it also has discernment. Because prajna is not something that you learn and you study, and then you figure, oh, this is what I have to do, and that quote, and that thing is this, and that's... It's more that it's an immediate insight. It arises seemingly out of the blue, in which you actually, from a rested sense, see what's actually going on. Because it's almost like um, a kind of expansion of awareness in which you feel the effect, the atmosphere. It has tremendous um, sharpness the more that we become familiar with prajna and are motivated by our practice. So this sharpness allows us to discern what's going on. Am I going to just give way to total aggression and reaction and frustration at this moment, which I feel every time I open a newspaper? I don't even read newspapers, but every time I open my laptop to look at the news, which I find sort of irresistible, I end up with this kind of overwhelming, stinking feeling of outrage. Like, how can this be? And then I settle down because the sharpness of prajna is such that it unglues us from the ever-revolving patterns of our thought process that wants to completely, through our minds, figure this out and solve it or get rid of it. And that's the obstacle to prajna. So at the moment that we have this practice and remember, we have a place to live from. So the discernment is, do I really jump on this? 
or do I listen more deeply? What's my skillful means at this moment? And if I do jump, which personally, like a frog off of a leaf, I'm really prone to do, <laughs> then I don't spend the day, or all the day, in a sense of regret and self-punishment or seeing who else I can drum up some more bleh with. It's a Dharmic term, bleh. <laughs> So this intelligence that we're talking about is always available. Chungpa Rinpoche said it's like being reunited with our parents who we hadn't seen in 30 years. It's actually reuniting with something that we lost or forgot about, particularly in this time, which I think of as the great forgetting and the possibility of the great remembering. What is the great remembering? The great remembering is that the mind is flexible, intelligent, alert, and capable of joy and that we don't have to go under at this particular time. That we may have access to insight or skillful means that we are not familiar with and don't realize can have tremendous effect or benefit to ourselves and others. I was um, talking with somebody a little bit about this talk today, and she um, told me that she worked in Sudan during the war, and that during the day, very often, she had to either be barricaded in her office or brought back to her five-star hotel, which hadn't been bombed so that she was safe because there was so much violence. And she worked with a group of women in a village outside the city, whose name I forget, excuse me. And one evening, when it was growing dark, where usually her driver would come to take her back to her hotel, she heard singing. And so she asked the driver to stay. And she stayed, and as it grew dark and people finished eating, all these people who had been shot at during the day and who had lost so many people and were living in dire fear were dancing and singing. And she was stunned. She said, I asked, it is such a terrible time, how can you dance and sing? And they said, how can we not dance and sing? So the practice keeps allowing us to become more naturally accessing a place within us where we can literally pause and we can relook or re-experience something. And in that re-looking, we have 
not only some relief from the torment of our own dictatorial mind that's saying, what are you doing that for? What a waste of time. Let's get down and do something important. And um, <laughs> that actually we can, we can pull back from that. That doesn't mean that there aren't moments of fierce action. But the action comes from another place that's much stronger than the fortified mind, which is a wall of thinking and desire and fear. So we are melting that wall in ourselves. And we have a greater strength because of our prajna. And the prajna is like the sister of compassion. Because the compassion comes then not from doing good, but from doing what is right that you know in the moment is to be done. And the expanse of intelligence that's available to us is something that you can't take my word from because it's an experience. You have to experience it. It happens almost like a multi-leveled thinking process without the grasping onto one thought after another. Whew. And sometimes there's the unknowing, not knowing what to do and being able to rest in that with great honesty to oneself first. So it's obvious then what an effect then we have on other people and how much we can be of benefit because it's based on something that's real and experienced and visceral. So there are three principles, of course, to prajna, which is called hearing, contemplating, and meditating. And I will um, tell you very quickly the kind of classical description of these three aspects of prajna. So the hearing has to do with our, not necessarily just hearing a teacher or reading a book or watching a video, but it's the capacity to learn to actually see what's going on and to learn where all of our experiences, whether they're positive or negative, whether they're successful or screwball-y or whatever they are, we're absolutely able to learn something about the nature of our mind and how we respond. And then we can read the teachings not in order to get the teachings, but in order to match it or collaborate it with our practice and our own experience so that we're beginning to recognize that these teachings are there not because they're sort of this rock-solid um, academic study of how things are, but they're, they're like signposts on a map so you can experience that you actually got to that small town in the mountains 
And then you experience the small town in the mountains and the journey because you have the capacity to experience it. So that's hearing. It's important, Rinpoche called the study and practice the two wings of the bird. It's not enough to just practice and it's definitely not enough to just um, learn all the concepts. Each one then leaves you somewhat barren. It is the study when you're practicing that allows us to begin to articulate and have a sense of how the mind and our actions work, how the whole world works actually. That's hearing. And then there's contemplating. Is everybody okay? Contemplating, and the contemplating is actually a kind of review, a, um, a looking at the experience of what you're learning. Sometimes it has to do with remembering um, that you learned about impermanence, so you learned about um, egolessness or passionlessness. You learned about prajna, where you learned it, what it felt like when you learned it, and how in your life have you experienced it. During this time of, of having a tremendous amount of pain, there's a great Dzogchen. Dzogchen is um, uh, one of the sort of higher levels of sort of immediate access to awakened mind teachings in Tibet. And there's a great teacher named Kachab Rinpoche. And he called me because a friend of mine uh, told him that this happened. And so it's always like a, like, oh, a Rinpoche is calling. What should I do now? And, um, but <laughs> there's nowhere to go on my bed. And um, he said this amazing thing. He said, I, I know the practice that you're doing. I've met him. And he said, well, if you want that practice to actually work, you need to contemplate. So I said, well, what should I contemplate? And he said, contemplate impermanence. He said, truly contemplate it. He said, and then the practice will have force in your life, but you'll also be much happier. So this contemplation is where we actually look at the idea through the lens of our own experience and our practice. We connect with it. So we're hearing the teachings, we're having an experience, and then we're actually taking time to contemplate it. What we're doing is strengthening prajna. Prajna is like a sword. It can be covered in patina and go blunt. But our study and our practice keeps sharpening it. So it is gentle and sharp. It's not used for harm or defense. It's used for awakening. It's the way we gently cut through the meat, so to speak. We slice through our fixations. 
So there's the hearing, the contemplating, and the meditating. And the meditating in this case is not just reflecting or relating to the practice that we're doing on the cushion. It has to do with taking the teachings to heart. So once we have actually heard the teachings and really seen how they work in our minds, we then allow them to penetrate us. So it becomes natural in situations to remember to practice, even quick on the spot. Like Pema Chodron, often talking to six or 700 people, will remind people that um, you don't need to do a 20-year retreat. Wait, I, I, can't, I haven't gotten it together to do the retreat even for a long day, so I'm not going to practice until I get this, that, and the other thing. She says, just stop, pause, breathe, interrupt. Samsara means the constant repetition, the revolving patterns of habitual action. And we're all caught in it. It doesn't go away, but here we cut through the tendency to get so caught up in it that we're dissociated from what's actually taking place and what's actually possible and the happiness that's possible for us. I mean, happy, happy, happy this, happy that, this is good, that's bad, that's okay, that's not so good. It's some sort of a, like a fundamental quality. It's really irritating to be with enlightened people because they're so cheerful. What's the matter with them? Or if you've ever like, lived on a, in a tribal situation, where people are in really di often dire poverty and really difficult situations, and they're taking care of you with such joy. What are you doing out here alone under the moon? I'm dancing with the moon. So if we want to know how to transform our world, we're going to start in our own sanctuary. Because I really don't have any idea what will stop this madness. But the one thing we can be certain of, that our little experience with mind allows us to see the propulsive force of ignorance, passion, and aggression. And each one of us that is willing, even just for like three minutes a day, to actually interrupt it, we have no idea of what is possible. So I'm advocating for the sanctuary and also for daring to cheer up in the midst of this truly terrible time. Not, you know, phony baloney, hi! I'm a really happy person. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, <laughs> but some innate sense that within that happiness allows for us to feel the depth of sorrow.
because there is a place we can feel it. And part of our fear of feeling that incredible sorrow is that it's, it's, it's limited or it's, it's closed off. But here, it's the deep weather of our time. And we can feel it and still feel a sense of meaning and joy. I don't know how many of you have that experience on a subway or I was sitting, you know, actually before this accident, I was sitting with a group of kids who were really, in some ways, out of their minds for some reason that day. <laughs> Maybe other days, but they were, they were just going. <laughs> I thought, wow, they were just going bananas. They could not, and maybe it was just being in that school in the heat wave, and it was summertime, and they're under such pressure, and blah, 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 blah. But I just, the teacher started yelling at them and said they were disrespecting me, and I just said, wait. I don't think, I don't feel disrespected. I think they want to talk. And the kids just stopped because they were talking. They were all talking at once. I said, it looks like they want to talk. I said, okay, the only rule in this game is when I say freeze, you stop. So I said, get up. You can run anywhere around in the room. You can't touch anybody. You can't say a word. And when I say freeze, freeze. So they started running. They were about to jump. I said, freeze. And we did this over and over again until they took partners. And then they sat down together. And I said, who's one? Who's two? One, two. This happens very quickly. And then I said, OK, one, I want you to talk to two. And they went, what should we say? I said, describe what they're wearing. And so then they started talking. Two, now you describe. One, now two, this. And they did. They put all their energy into this activity, talking to each other, telling each other what happened that was good, what happened that was bad, what irritated them, what was really nice, until they were laughing and quiet like puppies on the floor. Instead of criminals punished. And I think we do that actually with our own minds. I don't know if any of you have had that experience ever. So, sanctuary. This is our mission, if we choose it, to uncover out in the wild plains, to wear headdresses of fox and bear, of pigeon and cockroach. Whether we're male and female to wear the skirts of the great mother. And to know that there's not a single person who isn't undergoing what we are undergoing. And it may be that we cannot condone an activity Maybe we have to stop certain things. But to not have compassion, to not have the capacity for joy within ourselves and discernment would truly be the end. So every day I really suggest that we practice and study a little bit so that we can actually be nurtured with reminders 
of the hearing, contemplating, and meditating of these aspects, which are completely acultural, actually. <laughs> I'm sure we've each had somebody say to you, why are you meditating? Like, what a waste of time. So we're really, this, we're taking the mindfulness, which is now popular, and we are investing it with the true um, practice, which is awareness. So they go together. We're mindfulness, paying attention. And that opens us to the awareness in which we can draw forth like a bucket from the well water beneath the well. Like in the fairy tales, there's um, usually a, you know, a, the good person who drops a ring in the water and then a red fish swims up, not from the water that we know, but from way beneath that water to provide untarnished, pure spring water. So that's my talk for the evening. And let's converse together. You have questions or thoughts or an experience or anything. Let's, let's be together. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. Jeffrey, hi. Uh, you've been in my head repeatedly because I listen to the podcasts, but uh, this is my first time actually sitting in Sangha with you, so thank you very much. Um, it was very beneficial. Uh, I heard a lot of being compassionate, uh, both in practice uh, with yourself and also looking externally at the world. Um, could you maybe comment a little bit more on compassion in your practice or in the practice? Hmm. Hmm. I, I've told this story before. I was in a conference in Monterey, Mexico, following the mass murder by the mafia there of over a hundred and something people, excuse me. And there were 9,000 people in the audience and the main speaker was the Dalai Lama. And the title of his talk was Compassion. And he came out you know, with his entourage and a baseball cap and the whole Dalai Lama presentation and talked about compassion. And while he was talking, a woman among the 9,000 was so agitated that she was like a, a fire burning in that auditorium. And he stopped, and he had somebody bring her a microphone, and she was really angry, and she said, I can't, you know, my family, someone in my family was killed by this um, shoot. And how can, do you have, do you have compassion for terrorists? Do you have compassion for murderers, for rapists, for liars, for pedophiles, for billionaires, for false presidents? She didn't say that. And, uh, <laughs> and the Dalai Lama took off his base. I mean, all of us who were sitting you know, on the sidelines, who had very small parts in this conference, what was he going to say? Because it was so real. And he just said, I do not condone violence. I do not condone terrorists, 
aggression, rapists, the whole list he went on that we could drum up. And then leaning, he said, but I do have compassion for everyone. And for the first time in my life, it's like he had pulled the threads out. It wasn't just one ball, compassion. Compassion is an experience when you're practicing that is suffused with prajna, so you see causes and consequences. It is sharp as a knife, and so you act, not reacting, but you act based simultaneously on what needs to be done, what you can do, and understanding the causes of such extreme suffering and violence. So I, I can't say anything further than that, and I'm certainly not the master or mistress of <laughs> compassion. <laughs> but that really struck me, really struck me. So the unmitigated quality of compassion is not that we then are nice to everyone or polite to everyone. It has to do with really recognizing the delusion we're living in and the harm that it causes at, from the smallest to the largest level. But there's no way to get to any of this except through our personal experience and practice. And you notice as the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the three jewels, we have the teachings and the practice. We have examples of awakened mind, which eventually are really from our own minds. And then we have each other, people who are practicing together, because to be connected to each other and converse with each other is really helpful because we can remind each other and we can see each other. So um, is that a helpful answer? I mean, I don't have solutions to any of this, but I think it's a moment-by-moment moment path. We're on a path. I'm just a little um, stuck on warrior king and us as warriors in the world from the teachings. Is there a way to distinguish those two words? I hope so. Thank you. Yeah, because... Um, I think Trinpa Rinpoche loved to take words like good, basic goodness, to take words that we have um, assumed something about and then to really harvest them. He would spend, John Sennhauser, who was here I think last couple of weeks ago, was talking in our, we have a class called Profound Treasury, which everyone is invited to, by the way, in which we're reading through the early teachings of Trungpa Rinpoche, and we talk about it. So you're all welcome to come to that. But um, he said that the translation committee with Rinpoche, he would spend days exploring the wor a word and the root of the word. And so the idea of warrior in the world is that we have the sword that we're wielding is the sword of awakened mind. It's not the sharp sword that the warrior has in order to get more territory and to 
defeat enemies. We're defeating the enemy of our own fixation. And hopefully through that, working in the world to bring some benefit. So I hope that's helpful. I mean, there are many people who don't like the word. Um, and um, I don't use it a lot. But um, I think that that was what Trungpa Rinpoche was presenting, this idea of us all becoming a sort of army of goodness, not an army of obedience under a king, but an army with insight. The kings in early Egypt and the queens were not um, these powerful, um, without conscience people who they were the example of the possibility of something. At, the, at a transitional phase of culture, it's very interesting to read these studies because you can really, in, in a way, see where we are today and the quality of mind we might connect to that's always there and continuous and available. Thank you. Did you have a question? Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, talking about the kind of two wings of practice and experience. Study. Study. Yeah. Practice and study. This, the answer might seem obvious, but my question is, what is the anecdote to when those are out of balance? The antidote? Yeah. Or <laughs> the, the way to bring them in balance, I suppose. But probably to do it. Yeah. Just to do it. You know, because if you notice that it's out of balance, you're already closer. You know, if you don't notice, then you could be just soaring off into some kind of um, goofy realm of, oh, this is so great. Or um, this, you know, there's five of this and ten of this and seven of these, and this is it, and this is what the teachings is, and this is how we do it. So there's something about them together that brings it, that makes it personal, makes it available, makes it useful. So, I mean, sometimes, like today, is really a festival to reread these chapters in the Profound Treasury. Um, one of the great uh, senior teachers, Judith Leaf, spent something like 20 years gathering and editing all the talks of Trungpa Rinpoche's, and he actually told her not to publish it until a certain amount of time after his death. But they're really, they're three volumes, and um, now that, you know, with the Shambhala Center dissolving and so many really interesting and juicy questions up about hierarchy and, you know, all the things that um, are in our world today, it's really wonderful to go back to the root teachings. And even if you read, like, a, you know, choose a book and you read a few pages a day, and also then, you know, you can start your practice. We should stop in a minute. Start your practice with a contemplation. You know, today I'm going to contemplate the fact that when I'm thinking, I'll arouse awareness. I want to heighten my awareness of thinking and return to the breath. 
or what is egolessness? Then you can, you can even Google it. So, um, you know, and I, I think that's, there's no other way than to do it. But if you know that it's out of balance, then that's great. That's applying awareness. It's like, ooh, something doesn't smell right here. So then you do what you need to do. And we all have lives, and we all have different ways of going about things. So. And you know, the thing is that we're lazy also. So if you're lazy, know you're lazy. And contemplate it. I, uh, I learned the most from very scary... My father was a mafia doctor. Doctor? Yeah, he was a doctor. surgeon. And he was a mafia. They all came to him when they really needed a doctor. Oh. And when I was a child, they used to bring the witch doctor, the strega. They drive her up in a white Cadillac. She had no hair, wig. And she would talk to my dad. And she loved us. She brought us cookies, money. And she would always tell my dad, who's going to be sick that year? Which was code language. Fast forward years later, I'm in a terrible, terrible place. I'm hurting myself. I was young, 26, I was wasted. And I decided to do something about myself, and I did. And I became incredibly close to a thief. He was a second story thief. And he would teach me how to rob people, what kind of gun to use. But there was an incredible amount of compassion for women, because his mother was a prostitute. He would always tell me, if you hurt a woman and she takes you back, she only takes a half a man back. He would lean on a mailbox in Gramercy Park, and he would tell me the most amazing things about what to do as a man. He was a thief, a criminal. So I'm very careful now to dismiss people. You, you have to be careful who you hate. And you have to be careful who you label the worst of the worst, because sometimes in a dark room they tell you truth. That's a really extraordinary experience. And he uh, was extremely handsome. They called him Dapper. The, the rumor was that Cary Grant was his father. His mother was a Park Avenue prostitute. And she used to put him in the hall while she was working a client. It, it just almost destroyed him. But you know, he became what he is. But along with that, he developed this enormous capacity for women. Did not rape, did not murder, he just would tell me. And he would always close his eyes really hard when he was making a point, really hard. He'd lean against the mailbox and tell me a truth. And one day he came to my house, I was busy being very very fairy and close to God. And he said something that was in, changed my life. He said, Edgar, what are you doing while you're sober? Oh, I'm reading this. Why don't you, sobriety is a pair of pants, a new pair of shoes. Why don't you go to work? I went, oh. 
Oh, he will live forever in my heart. No one will ever take him away from me. He loved me and he taught me, but it lets me care for he was a thief. You know, you there. There's um, uh, Keith Downing, 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 Downing translated a book of stories which are called the Stories of the Siddhas. And they are thieves, prostitutes, um, murderers, all those who came to the Buddha and how the Buddha worked with them. Uh, they're remarkable stories. You might love them. And there's a great one about there's the stories of the Siddhas. S-I-D-D-H-A-S, and they were given practices, like there was a king who um, wanted the teachings of the Buddha, but he had something like, you know, a thousand wives, and he liked sex a lot, and um, so he said, well, I, I just don't think I can give that up, and so the Buddha gave him the practice of making love to all of his wives with absolute presence and attention. <laughs> And it says he actually levitated off the roof of the palace once. But um, anyway, <clears throat> but you might like reading those stories. They're outrageous and they're really interesting. Because we're also talking about in the Vajrayana teachings the transformation of the energy rather than, you know, um, if you go to the Rubin Museum and you see these amazing tankas, the paintings of deities, there are these monsters, six-headed monsters with you know, um, you know, a hundred hands with weapons and blood dripping down, dancing uh, on corpses. Nice fellows and girls. And um, they are actually those who the um, Buddha has transformed their completely negative energy into weapons of compassion. So their stories are also outrageous, that at a time when fierce compassion is needed, they became the protectors. So we should really stop before we enter the next stage of the storytelling festival <laughs> that happens after 8.30. <laughs> but is there any, anyone else have a really pressing question or, or need anything? 